Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome. It's good to see all of you and those of you who are joining us online. Grateful. Um, grateful for the opportunity to get into God's Word. Uh, this message has been uh, one that I've been wrestling with this week, and uh, I actually prepared the sermon on Monday, which is not normal for me. Normally, I prepare it throughout the week, but uh, there were some things going on. We ended up doing some college visits, a college visit with my son. He had soccer sectionals. And so, you know, we had a lot going on. But then after I finished it, I've had a lot of time to chew on it this week. And so I'm excited to dive into it with you. Remember our series? Our series is through the book of Hebrews. And it's called Consider Jesus because that's what the author of Hebrews is trying to get the people he's writing to to do. It even says, therefore, he is always able to save those who come uh, to God through him. Oh, I'm sorry. It says, therefore, holy brothers and companions in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. That, that's the theme. We've been going over the last several weeks. We get our titles for our messages from the text itself. Um, six weeks ago, we addressed the fact that our attention tends to drift, which is why we need to keep reconsidering and considering Jesus. We live in a world that wants to get our attention and cause it to drift away from Christ. And that's why we need to trust him more deeply, which we talked about. And as we're learning to do that, it's easy to then start to harden our hearts. If we start to drift away, if we're not trusting him, then our hearts become hard and we can't find rest. We become anxious, depressed, we become a mess. And thankfully, by the grace of God, he can soften our hearts. He can give us a rest, and as we're going to look at today, a forever and always rest. And as we go through that process, God then grows us to maturity, which he says in 6.1, and then we are to seize the hope that he calls us to. Because as we mature, we begin to see the world as it really is. And it's easy for us to look around and wonder, is it worth it? And realize that the process of maturity is one of dying to self and living to Christ. And as we seize that hope, God says, as you're doing that, it's not just some kind of hope that's out there somewhere. You're actually seizing me. You're drawing near to me. And God says, like Annie said in her testimony, you'll hear these themes over and over where God is in the pit with us. He's not saying you get out. He's saying, I want to take you out. Jesus came from heaven to earth to draw near to people. That was the plan all along from the garden of, or from the Garden of Eden all the way until Revelation. It's God's desire to be near. And he provides a way to do that even though we're a mess. And, and then the, today, what we're going to look at as we dive deeper into chapter 7 of Hebrews is forever and always. Forever and always. You know, these are some of the greatest words that people love to use in culture, right? I'll love you forever and always. No, you won't. You'll be dead. <laughs> like, the, the reality is, is forever and always are terms we like to use to make our efforts, to make our life seem grand and wonderful, but the reality of life is this, it's not forever and always in these bodies and in the circumstances and the things we find ourselves in. For those of us who may be doing really well right now, that's kind of depressing, but for those that may be not doing well right now, there's a comfort in knowing that the pain, the suffering, the problems, the issues are not forever and always. They're temporary. And the Bible is clear on that. In 725, he says, therefore, Jesus is always, because of all the things that we've looked at over the last several weeks, he is always able to save those who come to God through him. 
The Bible says he is the way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can get to God the Father. No one can get to heaven. No one can get to the forever and always rest, love, peace that we long for except through Jesus. Why? Because he always lives. Look at that word. Always lives to intercede for them, for those that have surrendered their lives to the forever and always of God himself. Think about that for a minute. We we have a God that is always living. He's been resurrected. Jesus died and came back to life. And it says he is always living. Well, why? Why What is he doing while he's living? He's interceding for you and me who are believers. He's... He actually cares for us so much that he is constantly interceding in our lives. He's interceding before the Father so that when we sin and we tell God, stick it, I don't want what you want, and we go our own way, Jesus is in heaven holding back the justice and wrath of God and interceding on your behalf and saying, I I love them. They have committed to me. We are purifying them. We're helping them become mature. They've drifted away, but we're going to draw them back. They're going to seize the hope. Hold back your wrath. Father. He is living for you and for me every day doing that, and he will for all of eternity be interceding on our behalf. I I don't know if you've ever had anyone intercede on your behalf, that, that have come alongside you when things are bad or when you've been falsely accused or when something is going on and they come alongside you and they intercede when you are powerless. You can't give your own testimony. You need someone else to give testimony for you because it's your word against theirs and so you need another witness. Jesus is our witness before the wrath and almighty Father who has to judge. He is the authority. He is righteous. And he is our witness that says, no, Father, They've been forgiven. They're mine. They're surrendered. They have considered me and I will hold them. I don't know if that excites you, if that gives you some peace, but I hope it does. I hope you understand that Jesus is considering his work in your life every day. And the Bible uses these terms forever, eternal, never ending, everlasting, long suffering. These are words you'll see all the time throughout Scripture. The, these words that we use, but if we're really honest, we can't use them. I get confronted by this all the time in my family, right? You'll find yourself talking, well, they always, no, they don't. You're right, they don't always, just most of the time. Like 99 out of 100 times. Okay, but it's not always. Oh, this is just last, this is lasting forever. This drive is forever. By the way, the drive that we took to Grace College up north was like forever, okay? It wasn't forever. It was three hours and 45 minutes. It seemed like forever. But we use these words not even, listen, not even recognizing anymore what forever and always even means. We, we throw them around so often because we want to use them as hyperbole and like, look how big and how long. Well, if I use these big words, then people will, will really sense what I'm saying. These words forever and always are only words that can be used in the context of God Almighty himself. And we like to use 
those words, but when God uses those words, he means it. Let me repeat that. We like to use those words, but when God uses those words, he means it. He's not just using hyperbole to try to convince you to do some decision or to consider him. He is actually forever and always and everlasting and all those things. No one else is. Everything else is is temporary except God and what he says is forever and always. And he tells us that the only thing that is forever and always is him and us, our souls. That's it. Everything else is not forever and always. But for some reason, God breathed life into man in the Garden of Eden to create us to be forever creatures with a decision to make. So as we dive into Hebrews 17, 17 says this, for it has been testified, that's a testimony, that's someone coming alongside and saying, we agree that this is true, that you are a priest forever. As we go through this morning, these passages, I want you to see how many forever, always, eternal words are used over and over and over again in this section. He says, forever in the order of Melchizedek. We talked about the Melchizedek priesthood the last couple of weeks and how that was a priest that came out to meet Abraham. And Abraham was the one that had the covenant to fulfill, to fill the earth, be fruitful and multiply. And that God's covenant was on Abraham. It was an unconditional covenant. God was going to do it whether Abraham wanted it or not. He's like, this is it. I'm going to do it. And you're going to submit to it. And here's what's going to happen. And so Melchizedek was this priest that came out, and he's a picture. Jesus is the ultimate Melchizedek. It's not a priest from the Old Testament. We'll see in a minute. So the previous command, the previous command about the priesthood, about all the Old Testament laws, is annulled because it was weak and unprofitable. It doesn't mean it wasn't good. See, we see those words weak and unprofitable, and we think, oh, it means it wasn't good. No. The law was perfectly designed to do what it was intended to do which is to show us how desperate we are for something eternal, for something always, because the law is constantly showing us that we're in trouble, that it's a mess, that we're not going to last, that we keep messing up. It was to point us to the one who would be forever. Then he says, for the law perfected nothing. The law just tells us we're not perfect. It doesn't perfect us. God perfects us, which is why they made sacrifices in the Old Testament was to go to God and say, hey, us obeying doesn't perfect us. That's why we have to keep making sacrifices to declare you perfect us, not us perfect us. Oh, and by the way, they had to make those sacrifices through priests so that they couldn't just make it on their own and be like, hey, God, you and me are okay. No, you needed a witness to go before God on your behalf to say they really mean what they're saying. They really mean the commitment they're making. And so I am going to stand as a priest with them before God and say they are a part of your family. See, that's what Jesus does for us now. The Old Testament priesthood was a picture. We're going to see in a minute a shadow of that. But look what this says, but a better hope is introduced through which we draw near, which we looked at that verse a couple of weeks ago. You see, the reason we do not draw near to God and his body in the church is because we don't live in light of forever and always. We think, well, tomorrow, well, next week, next month, well, eventually I'll get to church, eventually I'll... 
We don't, we don't like to deal with forever and always, and the reason is we know we're powerless to forever and always. Like, like there's like, I don't even know what to do with that. It's so far off. It's, it, I deal with like right now. Like I'm going to have to eat, and then I'm going to have to eat again and eat again. I can't find the forever and always meal, even though they advertise it all the time, right? You can get some beet juice. It'll be your forever and always. You just drink beet juice, and it'll like change your life. I mean, there's always something that's promising that this is going to change your life. You see, most of us look at forever and always, and we, it's more like, well, for right now until I get tired of it. See, Jesus isn't like that. Jesus doesn't say, well, I, I love them right now until I get tired of them. But that, that's not our God. That's not the language our God uses. It's the language we use. And it's what we do in relationships. It's not what God does in relationships. Hebrews goes on to say, none of this happened, look at this, without an oath. For others became priests without an oath. That means the Levitical priesthood, if you were born a Levite, you were automatically a priest. You didn't have to take an oath. It's not like you had to say, hey, I really want to be a priest. I'm going to commit to being a priest. They're like, duh, you're a Levite. You don't have a choice. You're going to be a priest whether you want to or not. That was the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament. Oh, and by the way, if you don't want to be a priest and you don't want to do what God tells you to do, well, they would just kill you. Like, you're dead. Like, that that was literally, like, the options. This is an oath that God gives. It says, but he became a priest, that's Jesus, with an oath made by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn, and he will not change his mind. These are forever terms. Swearing, an oath, he will not change his mind, that you, Jesus, are a priest forever. You're the priest that doesn't die off on us. You're the priest that doesn't just do what he wants to do and is a sinner like us, you're completely and utterly outside of us. In other words, Jesus is that priesthood bridge to get us to relationship with God. That's what he is. And the priests of the Old Testament were just like shadows and symbols of a true priest that would come someday that would save us. That we would offer like Abraham offered to, offer our very lives to forever and always because of what he's done, and because of who he is, and the authority he has as a priest. You see, the scriptures are God's oath. It says, none of this happened without an oath. The Bible is God's oath to humanity. It's God's oath to himself, to his heavenly family. It is his oath to say, this is what's true. This is who I am. This is who you are. This is what needs to be done. He gives his oath, and he doesn't break it. He doesn't like go back on it. He gives it and he sustains it and he sticks with it. And that's why it says he swore by himself. If you read the Bible, you'll see a phrase over and over again. And the phrase will be the Lord's declaration, the Lord's command, the Lord's declaration. When you see that, it is saying It's like a doubling down. It doesn't mean the other stuff isn't God's declaration. It's like God is grabbing you. He's seizing you to look at you in the face and say, listen to me. I am going to declare to you directly. Here's the deal. In this Hebrews passage, we talked about this a little bit last week. In this Hebrews passage, the writer and author of Hebrews is using a psalm. It's Psalm 110. 
He is using a psalm from the Old Testament, an oath. This psalm is an oath of what God is going to do, what he is doing, what he will do, the whole nine yards. Psalm 110 is an oath. By the way, Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the entire New Testament. It's quoted over and over and over again in the New Testament. It is an oath. It is a swearing. This psalm lays the foundation for Peter writing, Paul writing. It lays the foundation for us. And actually, all of the guys of the Old Testament, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and religious leaders of Jesus' day, believed that this psalm was talking about the Messiah and talking about the forever one that would come to rescue them. It was agreed upon. And what this author in Hebrews is doing is he's actually pulling quotes, direct quotes from Psalm 110. He is not saying, here's what I believe. Here's what I think. Well, this is how I see it. Well, this is how I consider Jesus. No, no, no. He's saying, this is what God says about himself, about what we should consider. I I am telling you, witnesses for hundreds and hundreds of years have sung this psalm. They've memorized this psalm. This is God's word, and he is doubling down, and he's using scripture to interpret and tell you scripture. That's how it's supposed to be, folks. If you want to know if something's forever and always, God typically will say it over and over again, forever and always. You can find it all over the Bible. You can see the theme. That's what the author of Hebrews is doing. Look at Psalm 110. It starts out just like I said. This is the declaration of the Lord. You see, that's really a question we have to ask. Is it? Or was this guy just writing a song and... They wrote it down, and it's really not the Lord's declaration. See, that's the thing we wrestle with all the time. Did God really say it's the original sin of the Garden of Eden? And in Psalm 110 that this author in Hebrews is quoting from, he says, this is the declaration of the Lord. Now watch this. To my Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, rule over your surrounding enemies. Your people will volunteer on your day of battle in holy splendor from the womb of the dawn. The dew of your youth belongs to you. The Lord has sworn an oath. That's what he just said in Psalm or in Hebrews and will not take it back forever you talking about Jesus, a priest like Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand hand. This psalm is talking about Jesus. This psalm is actually talking about Jesus being the Messiah. One of the problems that you have to realize with this psalm, and one of the reasons if you look in your Bible, it has this, the Lord to my Lord. Whenever you see the word Lord, you have to understand that most of the time in the Old Testament, when you see that word, it's actually the tetragrammaton. It's the four Hebrew consonants that mean Yahweh. It's the name that God gave to himself and asked himself to be called by. It was a personal name. It'd be like somebody walks in, I'm like, hi, I'm Matt. Not, I am the pastor of this church. Welcome. And may you sit and listen to me. No, no, no. It's not like some supreme authority. It's like, hey, I'm Matt. What's your name? God gave himself a name. He said, I am Yahweh. I want you to relate to me. I, want, I don't want you to just give, 
So here's the deal. The writers, when they wrote this, scholars were so afraid to misuse God's name because of the commandment that talks about it, of the Ten Commandments, that they changed the name of God around and they came up with a name called Adonai. They would, they would switch the name. And so in the Greek Septuagint that is translated, that we get our Bibles from, most of it, you'll have this Lord to my Lord. And really, it's Yahweh to Adonai. But if you go back and understand where the word Adonai comes from, he is literally saying, this is the declaration of Yahweh to my Yahweh. Wait, what? I thought there was one God. I thought there was one God, not multi-gods. We're not a multi-god. What do you mean Yahweh to my Yahweh? See, David is writing, he's writing this, listen, tune in. He's writing this as a king. There's no one in higher authority than David. So if he's talking about another Lord above him, my Lord, there's no one above David except God himself. That's it. Because he is the anointed king. So what David is writing is, the Lord is declaring that forever and ever there is a Lord to my Lord that will sit at the right hand of Yahweh who is Lord. Scholars of the Old Testament could not figure this out. It messed with them. They could not understand because they refused to believe in the humanity of Jesus and the deity of Jesus coming together in one. See, they thought there was going to be a manly Messiah. What's the motivation for thinking that maybe just a man will be a Messiah? You want to know what the real heart issue behind that is? Maybe I'm him. See, if man's the Messiah, <laughs> maybe I'll be the Messiah. Maybe God will call me to be the Messiah. Maybe, maybe my clan will be the one raised up to have the Messiah. But if the Messiah is actually God himself in the form of a man, that's forever and always, and I can't touch it. And so David, not knowing what he's saying, he's prophesying, he's telling the truth about God and the future that's to be revealed, says all of this about Jesus. And he says that the response to those who know God and believe in the forever and always will be to surrender their lives to him, to serve him. To go to war for him. Now they loved this in the Old Testament. They believed the Messiah was going to come and march them off to war. They were going to kill the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Romans, whatever group was in power. They thought they were going to march with their Messiah, overthrow them forever and always, get the earth that they had already created to reign on. And God says, uh-uh. I'm going to come and I'm going to die and show you that everything must die and everything must be gone and then I'm going to bring back that which only I can do, not what you can do. And he asks us to choose which kingdom we'll be a part of. Look at what Jesus says. Jesus actually quotes this psalm when he's having a discussion about who he is as the forever and always priest, king, and messiah. In Matthew twenty two forty one, 41, it says, while the Pharisees, those were the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they had the whole Bible memorized, forward to end. That's how you passed the pharisaical test. You had to have the entire Bible memorized at that time, the whole Old Testament. And they were together with Jesus, and then Jesus questioned them. I love this. Jesus says, what do you think about the Messiah? 
I mean, Jesus just goes to the heart of this psalm. Whose son is the Messiah? David's, they told him. Well, he's going to come from David because he's got to be a king and David's son. He asked them, how is it that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls the Messiah Yahweh? The Lord declared to my Lord, Yahweh declared to Yahweh, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Remember, where is Jesus right now? He is sitting by the Father, interceding on your and I's behalf until it's time to come again. And he's interceding so that more might come to know him because he knows that the rest of this psalm is going to come true and people are going to be annihilated forever and always and he does not want that for them. And so Jesus is sitting and waiting. It says, if David calls him Lord, Jesus says, calls him Yahweh, how then can the Messiah be his son? You guys are so smart. You got your religion figured out. You got your system of how to do life so figured out. Just answer me this simple question. No one was able to answer him at all. These are the most trained religious people to probably ever exist on the planet. These people know the Bible forward and backwards and have every scripture memorized and they have no answer. And from that day, no one dared to question Jesus anymore. They didn't want to be embarrassed. You see, Jesus has forever and always answers when we come to him with temporary questions. And our world hates that, including you and you and me. I don't want a forever and always answer. I want a now answer, God. I've got problems now. They need to be fixed. I don't feel well. I want this. I, would, I need this. I need this. I need this. I need this. And God's like, forever and always, Matt. Forever and always. Do you believe me for that? Will you walk through the suffering? Will you walk through this life? Will you serve me in the day of battle, will you give your life to me when life doesn't work out the way you want it? Will you believe in forever and always? It's like, well, that's hard. I don't know forever and always. I just know like now. I don't know what my forever body's going to be. Maybe I like this one better. I, I won't. But anyway, I, I don't know what my always, you know, personality will be. But I kind of like this one. God's like, no. Th those are just pictures or shadows. You see... The New Testament teaches that this invitation is given to Jesus to sit at Yahweh's right hand and it was fulfilled by him when he ascended into heaven after his death and sat down. Look at how Peter uses Psalm 110. Look at this. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.22, Now that Jesus has gone into heaven, he is at God's right hand with the angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, equip yourselves also with the same resolve, because the one who suffered in the flesh has finished with sin. In order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. What's God's will? Bible, <laughs> right? To reach people, to intercede on behalf of people. That's what Jesus is doing in heaven. That's what we should be doing. We should be interceding on behalf of one another. 
And that just doesn't mean prayer. That means telling people, you're not right with God. I I love you enough to intercede, not to watch you be destroyed, but I want to intercede. I want you to forever and always and even now experience God. For there's already been enough time spent in doing what pagans choose to do, carrying on an unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. So they are surprised that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of wild living, and then they slander you. They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. There is a just and righteous God who stands ready to judge and praise God. There is a priest standing between that God and us, interceding for us while God is patient with us and changing us and making us more like him. Hebrews goes on and says this, so Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant, a better vow, a better oath. Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. Okay, There's been tons of Levitical priests and then they die off and we get another priest and another priest and another priest. There's only been one true priest, eternal and forever and always priest and he's always been there and he always will be. But because he remains forever, look at this, he holds his priesthood permanently. We don't have to worry about him quitting on us. We don't have to worry about him dying on us. Therefore, he is always able, look at this, to save those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. You see, earthly authority is always limited by this thing called death. You can be an authority on earth, but once you die, your rules and your laws are out the window unless there's an authority above you. The reason we have a constitution is so that when political leaders die, we have a document, we have words that show us how to live after our leaders die. That's the Bible. That's God's word to us. And good leaders, good good people will point us to the word of God as our foundation above all things because that is the thing that has all authority because that's what Jesus is doing. He is interceding with his words on our behalf, reminding us and reminding his father of what is true. The angels are singing, the angels are declaring the truths of God every day, always and forever. And God invites us into that. You realize that your prayers are flawed. And the Bible says that Jesus actually perfects our prayers for us and takes them to the Father. Our prayers are are flawed because we're so focused on right here and now that our prayers can become very flawed and very self-centered if we're not careful. Does that mean we can't give a self-centered or selfish prayer? Nope. You can have all kinds of self-centered and selfish prayers. Read the Bible. They're all over the place by very faithful people. The great thing about God is he takes that and he goes, I'm going to clean that away. That's not good. But but look at that nugget. There's the for always and ever nugget Matt had right there in his prayer. I'm going to take that to the Father. The rest of it, you get killed if I take that to my Father. So like he's interceding, he's perfecting on your behalf. How awesome is that? How awesome would it be if you had a brother or a sister that you went into them to complain about mom and dad, right? And you go in, you're like, mom is this and dad this and dad is this. And they think they have all the authority and they think they can tell me and, and I want to obey them, but I, 
I just, do, this is terrible. And your brother or sister walked in and said, man, mom and dad, I just want you to know, my brother just said you have all authority. <laughs> he thinks that, that you're right on everything. And he really would like for you to consider what he's struggling with right now. And I think we should pray for him. Oh, well, yes, let's pray for your brother right now. That isn't even close to what your brother said, right? But see, we don't want to perfect. That's not our goal. Our goal is to throw people under the bus. Why? So we can have authority. So we can get on top. That's not Jesus. Jesus is interceding and perfecting our prayers because he loves us so much. That is amazing to me that he does this and he does it forever. Look at what Jesus says about this forever and always life, that he, he desires to offer himself. It says here, he offers himself for us. Look at what Luke says. Jesus, this is Jesus' words. He says, and I say to you, my friends, I love this, Jesus calls us his friends. He wants a friendship with us. It's not just he's king and he's priest and he's, oh, he's up there somewhere. No, he wants it to be personal. He says, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing. In other words, don't fear people who don't do forever and always. Well, they could hurt me. Yeah. So could a rock coming out of the sky from the heavens out of an asteroid belt and land on your head and kill you. He goes on and he says, but I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Fear the one who has authority forever and always on our eternal destination, not just where you want to get to in this life. Then he goes on. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? And yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Indeed, the hairs on your head are all counted. And I'm losing them. The count's going down. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I am afraid. It's why I wear a hat in the sun. You are worth more than many sparrows. And I say to you, anyone who acknowledges me before me, me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God. That's what Jesus is doing. He's acknowledging and saying, nope, they know me. The angels want to come down and bring justice someday. And Jesus is like, nope, they're mine. Leave them alone. They're mine goes on and says, friend. He says, friend again. He said to him, who appointed me judge and arbitrator over you? This guy comes and wants to make an argument about an inheritance. He told them, watch out and be on your guard against all greed because one's life is not the abundance of his possessions. Then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I'll do this. He said, I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all of my grain and my goods there. How many more storage units do we need in Bloomington? Seriously. There's a whole brand new storage unit place that went up where a church was supposed to go right down the street from me. Church owned the property for a decade and they sold it so they could do this. He goes on and he says, I will do this, he said. I will tear down my barns, build bigger ones, and store all my grain and goods there. Then I'll say to myself, have you ever said to yourself, hi self, I'm going to say to myself, that is the most pointless thing, right? When you start talking to yourself, talk to God. Don't talk to yourself because you, you're a bad advice giver. 
Okay? Talk to him. He goes on, he says, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat. Enjoy yourself. Retire in Florida and play golf. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is demanded of you and the things you have prepared, then whose will they be? They're not forever and always. That's how it is with the one who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. He doesn't say don't store up. He says, why are you storing? Then he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or the body or what you will wear. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. Consider the wildflowers. Consider Jesus. He didn't care about his life. He gave up his life. If that's how God clothes the grass, which is in the field today and is thrown into the furnace tomorrow, how much more will he do for you You of little faith. Don't keep striving for what you should eat and what you should drink. And don't be anxious. For the Gentile world eagerly seeks all these things. And your father knows you need them. But seek first the forever kingdom. The always kingdom. And these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock. Because your father, look at this, delights to give you the kingdom. Jesus isn't in heaven like, well, I'm holding... He delights to take us before the Father and say, look what they did. Look at how they're living. Look at who they shared with. Look at who they're discipling. Look at what they're doing. I know they're just a little flock. I know they're small, but man, God, look at what they're doing. He longs for that conversation. He says, sell your possession. Give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old. An exhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, it's amazing to me to hear in all these testimonies, there are two common themes that we've heard over and over and over again. And they're the same themes that have been repeated from Genesis all the way till the book of Revelation. And they're simple. There are two things where your heart will be. You start to hear people talk about where their heart was and how God got a hold of their heart and changed them. How they were in church or they weren't in church or whatever, and how their heart chased all these things and all of a sudden God got their heart and in the process of getting their heart, you know what he also gave them? A body. And in every story, you hear someone talk about making an oath, making a decision to commit themselves to a flock, to a body of believers, to say, this will be my family. It's a temporary family. You might only be in Bloomington a year, two years, four years. I don't know. But guess what? You may be dead tomorrow. And I commit myself to this temporary thing as a means by which to live out the forever and always. That's the purpose of the body of Christ. That's the purpose of the church. It's not to build something great on this earth that the world and the Gentiles and everybody looks at and says, wow, that's amazing. It's to look like a wildflower or a sparrow and go, there's another sparrow pooping on my deck. Should I shoot him? No. Okay. That's my thoughts about sparrows. This week. Then you read this verse and you're like, oh wait, like God delights in just the simple. Hebrews goes on to say this, since he always lives to intercede for this kind of high priest we need, holy. He's not like us. 
He's innocent, not guilty like us. He's undefiled. He's never done anything dirty or crude. He's separated from sinners and he's exalted above the heavens. In other words, he created the heavens. It's not about getting to heaven. It's about getting to the priest. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself. You see, this is the essence of the gospel. That there is a sense of which we offer ourselves one time for always. Where we surrender our heart to Jesus and we say, I am yours and we surrender. And then the rest of our life is spent figuring out forever and always versus temporary and disappearing. That's the rest of our life. The rest of our life is spent realizing that Jesus offered himself and I have to keep coming back to the high priest. I keep coming back to Jesus and Jesus looks at me and says, there's nothing you can do except trust me. There's nothing, you've already surrendered your life to me. Let me change you. Let's participate in forever and always together. How about we do that? And I can reject that and turn away and praise God because of his oath and his vow. Unlike all the other relationships in our world, Jesus is holding back the wrath of the Father saying, nope, they're straying away. They're drifting away. Nope, they're not trusting us. Yes, their heart's hard. No, they're not drawing near. But I am, give me time. And forever and always he is working, not because of what we've done, but because of his promise, his oath, and his grace. Look at what John writes in his gospel about John the Baptist. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him. This was John the Baptist and said, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, the Lamb was sacrificed at Passover to pass over, cover the sins of the people. John the Baptist is looking at Jesus and says, this is the ultimate Passover, the one Passover lamb that will end us having to sacrifice lambs today because there's a better lamb. I don't need to sacrifice a tiny lamb because I have the best lamb. Why would I sacrifice a tiny lamb? Makes no sense. I got got a better lamb. He goes on and he says, the next day John was standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the lamb of God. The two disciples heard John say this and followed Jesus. They literally left John and followed Jesus. And John was like, yes, that's a good thing. When Jesus turned and noticed they were following them following him, look at what he asked. He asked them, what are you looking for? Let me ask you, what are you looking for? Are you looking for forever and always? Or every day do you wake up just looking for today? Trust me, I wrestle with this. It is a constant battle in a world that's all about now and feeling and what you want. And God says, I've got something better. I've got a relationship that's better, but you've got to get to know me just like any other relationship. And if you want to keep running to temporary relationships and not running to the permanent relationship with me and the permanent relationship with my body that's forever and always, you're not going to find rest. And you're not going to mature. So Jesus asked them, what are you looking for? Are you looking for just a quick fix? Revelation. In Revelation, the word the lamb is used 29 times. 
The final book of the Bible, 29 times, says Jesus, like we just read in Hebrews, is that one sacrifice. He offered himself as the lamb forever and always to cover our sins and to make us right with God. There is no other God, no other religion on the face of the planet, listen to me, that presents this. None. There is no religion on the face of the planet that tells you with an oath, with a sworn promise, forever and always you can trust in your God. No, all the rest of them say, you can trust, but then you got to keep working. You got to, you better, you better keep up. You better be good so that he doesn't take it away from you and you don't end up reincarnated as a rat. That is not our God at all. Our God offers a free gift of grace, unmerited favor to say, just believe that I am the forever and always God, and I know you're a mess. By the way, you're going to continue to be a mess, but through the body and through one another and through life and through its sufferings, I'm going to perfect you. I am going to make you a forever and always person. You ready for this? Whether you want to be or not, because there's going to come a point when you come to a sickness or a problem or an issue or the end of your life, and you're going to look around and you're going to be like Solomon and go, it's all worthless. And when you say that, I hope, I hope you've grown enough to realize you look around and say it's all worthless and then you can look to God and say, but you're not. You're not worthless. And the lives I touched and the people are not worthless through my life. That's what matters. I may not have any worldly worth left. No worldly worth in this body, no bank account, no nothing. But it was worth it forever and always. Hebrews goes on and says this, For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the promise of the oath which came after the law appoints a son who has been perfected forever. God says this is a family. Jesus says you're friends. He says this isn't about some like religious priesthood and some religion. This is family. And if there's something, if there's, If there's one thing that frustrates me more than anything else and breaks my heart more than anything else, it's the inability of our world to see the body of Christ as family. It breaks my heart every day. I've tried to give and I've called my family to give their lives as family. And I watch people make decisions and make choices and kick their family and say, I'm done with you and run the other way. And I think, what are they doing? That is not heaven. Forever and always is family struggling together, confronting one another. It's family sending one another out with blessing. I don't want everybody to stay here. That's not the call of God. The call of God is to fill the earth, be fruitful, multiply, and to make him known all over the world. I don't want you to stay. I want to send you out. But most people leave. They don't want to be sent under authority. They don't want to be sent with blessing. They want to chase some blessing. It breaks my heart when Jesus is the son who invites us into his family forever. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew. Again, you've heard it said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath. But I tell you, keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it's God's throne or by earth because it's his footstool or by Jerusalem because it's the city of the great king see we always want to ramp up the oath right forever always I'll be there stop he goes on and he says neither should you swear by your own head because you cannot make a single hair white or black I mean you could try you could dye it last for a little while but then it just goes back 
Then he says, look, but let your word yes be yes and your no be no. And look at this. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Three words you can use when talking to people. Yes, no, wait. That's it. Anything beyond those three words, you're walking a dangerous path with the evil one. Yes, no, wait. Those are God's words to us. Anything else is from the evil one. And wait means I don't have an answer yet. I don't know what to answer. I'm trying to figure that out. Pray for me. Pray with me so we can figure out what the yes or no is. But that's not what we do. We decide a yes or a no, and then we change it. And then we expect no consequences for that. We expect people to just be okay with our whims of, oh, I said yes, and now I say no. Here's the great part, though. You ready for this? When you break your word and realize you've done evil, you know what you have? An advocate who's interceding before you. So when you realize you screwed up, you can go, God, I should have kept my yes. I don't know how to fix this now. And he goes, great. I love you. I'm going to intercede. It's fine. You're forgiven. Let's figure out how to do yes and no the right way. Because I love you and I want you to represent me. I want people to see forever and always is real. And they're going to see it through your life. By the way, you give your oaths and your yeses and your noes and how you repent when you break your yeses and noes. That's the people of God. That's who we're supposed to be. We're not supposed to be declaring promises and saying, declare your promise, declare your blessing, declare your promise. Just yes be yes, no be no. If you sin, confess. God is interceding on your behalf. Luke 1 is a great story that I love about someone who understood forever and always. The angel of the Lord told Mary, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, again, a family, and you will call his name Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne. Are you seeing this? The throne, seated at the throne, the right hand of God, of his Father, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I've not been intimate with a man? Great question. Hard to get pregnant without having sex. The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. He will cover you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God, both God and man. Look at Mary's response. This thing was going to, this ruined her life. You realize that, right? Any plan she had at this point, she was engaged to Joseph. I'm sure they had a house picked out. I'm sure they had a life picked out. I'm sure they had how this was going to all work. And now she's a woman pregnant out of wedlock who has to tell people God did it. You try that. See how it goes. Yeah, I know I'm pregnant, but God did it. I haven't ever had sex. <laughs> okay, she's nuts. Right? This ruined her earthly life. She she went to Nazareth, a horrible place to live. Like think of your worst town you would ever live in. That's that's Nazareth, right? Like if, I don't know what town that is for you. Maybe it's Bowling Green as you drive down the road and you go through that little town, Bowling Green, you know, and you're like, wow, there's nothing here. Yeah, that's Nazareth. Look at Mary's response. I am the Lord's slave, said Mary. May it be done to me according to your word, according to forever and always. 
Then the angel left her. We have absolutely zero indication that angels ever appeared to Mary again. That's it. Now live your life. Have a good time. Figure it out. I'm with you. Sound familiar? That God meets us, we make that decision, and then he does his work, and we have to continue to trust that his word of what he said over our feelings, over our emotions, over the mess. Hebrews goes on to say, now the main point, here's how the author's wrapping up. He says, now the main point of what is being said is this, we have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand, right hand, of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Actually, it'd be this side, because he's sitting this way. Right hand of the majesty of heavens. That's the high priest. He's sitting. You know what that means? His work's done. He's sitting down. He's like, how do we know this? Look at John. After this, when Jesus knew, he's hanging on the cross, that now everything was accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus' death fulfilled the forever and always of all of the Bible. Front to back, the whole thing. His death, his resurrection declared everything fulfilled. It is finished. Just not quite yet. It's the already, but not yet. And then he says, he said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they found a, fixed a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop and held it up to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, sitting down at the throne, he gave up his spirit. See, Jesus had to raise up to drink on the cross, on the nails, because you died of asphyxiation, suffocation from crucifixion. So to take that drink and to say these words, it is finished, he would have to pull himself up and raise up his head. And then at the moment when he said, it is finished, his earthly body drops, and now his heavenly reign is established forever. With his head held high at the right hand of his father. See, that's faith. That is incredible faith to believe that that was the plan of God and that he would do it. Two times Jesus was offered wine in the book in, in the New Testament that we know of when he was on the cross. He was offered the first time wine with gall in it. Gall, most scholars believe, was a form of poppy. It was a way that they would get the guys kind of high so that they would live longer on the cross. They could make them suffer. Because, see, crucifixion wasn't about killing you. It was about showing everyone out there, you don't want to be crucified. So they wanted to keep you alive as long as possible so more people could see you being crucified and go, I don't want to mess with the Romans. And Jesus denied the alleviation of his pain and suffering through the wine offered with gall and then he takes this sour wine, which would have been vinegar wine, and his cut and opened and bloodied body would have had vinegar running all down it. By the way, at the moment that he probably took this sour wine, ready for this? It was probably the moment that they were passing the last cup of wine at the Passover, thinking of the blessing and forgiveness of God. So the reason he was asking for the sour vinegar wine that was going to burn his wounds and cause him more suffering was because he wanted to drink with us at his Passover. You can't write this kind of stuff. This is either true or it's nuts. 
And that's our God. That on the cross, in the midst of his suffering, he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about you. He's thinking about me. He's thinking about his people who are celebrating Passover. And he just wants to celebrate with them, understanding that he is being sacrificed. Psalm 105 goes on to say, The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his anger. He will judge the nations, heaping up corpses. He will crush leaders over the entire world. He will drink from the brook by the, by the road. Therefore, he will lift up his head. He lifted up his head to say, it is finished. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And when he dropped, he was lifted up forever and always. Hebrews goes on to say, that he became a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not by man. There was an earthly tent, tabernacle, but now his body is that. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary for this priest to have something to offer. He offered himself. See, we don't have anything to offer God either except ourselves. That's the gospel. It's what Jesus modeled. I have nothing to offer but myself, my flesh, my humanity. And we offer the same thing for the greatest trade-off in the world, which is eternal life forever with him. Now, if he were on earth, he would still be a priest. Wouldn't he be a priest? Since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law, these serve, look at this, as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses warned, was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. Moses was said, make it exactly like I tell you to, because it's going to be a picture of, of what's coming. And everything in the Old Testament is a picture of the true reality that we're supposed to be longing for forever and always. For God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. That's where Moses went up to the mountain. He was given the word of God on the mountain. He was given God's law, his words on the mountain. Do it according to the forever and always word where Moses received the word. There's coming a day when this will be fulfilled, but not yet. Revelation says it this way, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea no longer existed. I also saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. See that? We didn't make it. God is bringing it. And then he says, Prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. That's the bride of Christ, the church. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, this is from the throne. This is not an angel. This is from the throne, says. God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. God the Father is speaking about his son. Man, they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will no longer exist because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. It is finished. That's what he said on the cross. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. The beginning and the end. I will give water as a gift to the thirsty from the spring of life. The victor will inherit these things and will be his God. Remember when we read in Psalm where he was drinking from the river, the river that's going to run through Jerusalem? I did not see a sanctuary in it, in the city, because the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its sanctuary. It's a family. There's no need for a building because we're a family now. 
Nothing profane will ever enter it. No one who does what is vile or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Let me ask you, is your name written forever and always in the Lamb's book of life? And by the way, it can't be erased. If God writes it in his blood, he can't erase it. Why would he? He keeps his oaths and his promises. If you truly know him and if you've truly surrendered to him, you don't have to fear being written out. In Acts, as we wrap up, as, Jesus, as Peter is preaching in the book of Acts, he again uses Psalm 110. He again uses what this author of Hebrews explains to us. And he says, God has resurrected this Jesus. He's giving his first big sermon to everyone. We are all witnesses of this. Peter's like, we all saw this resurrection. We saw him die and we saw him alive. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We are still waiting for Jesus to come again to make the enemies his footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Yahweh Yahweh, who who saves, who is the Messiah. That's who he is. You can't deny it now. He is either God or he's a lunatic and a liar. There's no in between. When the people heard this, they came under deep conviction and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what must we do? That is the statement of forever and always. I surrender. What now? What now? We crucified the Messiah. Oh my goodness, what now? Peter answers, repent. Turn from your old way, turn from your way of thinking and what you want and your desires and your temporary and your now and how you feel and turn to forever and always and be baptized each of you in the name of Yahweh saves who is the Messiah. That's what Jesus Christ means. For the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not something that comes later. The second you come to know Christ, the second you choose to follow Christ, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. He doesn't hold out on you. He's not holding it like, well, if you do this, then you can have the Spirit. And if you do this, no, he puts it in you and it messes with you the rest of your life. Forever and always. Thank God, I mean, thank God that happens. Then he says, look at this. For the promise, the oath, is for you and for your children, for those who are far off, as many as the Lord will call forever and always. And with many other words, he testified strongly and urged them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Look at what they devote themselves to. Very simple, forever and always things. 3,000 people were added. You want to know what also got added that day? Persecution. Because when the Pharisees and the religious leaders saw that 3,000 people left their camp to go to God's, and when the Romans saw them explode like that, it became, let's kill them. Let's get rid of them. And Peter ends up in prison right after this because of it. Because see, the forever and always message is super offensive. He goes on and he says this in Matthew. Jesus is leaving. He's going up to sit at the right hand of the Father forever and always. And the 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, 
to the mountain. Remember, we just talked about a mountain where Jesus had directed them. He said, go up to the mountain, like Moses went up to the mountain to receive the word. Look at this. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. You mean you can worship God and have a forever and always relationship with him, but still doubt? Yep. It's right here. And then it says, then Jesus came near. Remember, he draws near to give them hope. And he said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Always with us. Forever and always, Jesus says, which gives us the confidence then to go out to make disciples, to teach people knowing that we're probably going to get persecuted for the teachings. That we don't have to cover up the truth. We need to give the truth in love and in compassion with a heart for them to surrender to Jesus. But we've got to give the truth. A few questions for you to consider. These are the questions we looked at in these passages. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Who appointed Jesus the judge or arbitrator over you? And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? What are you looking for? How can this be? Brothers, what must we do? Can I just tell you? Here's what you must do. You must believe that Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry. And to that decree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been, illegally, which has been legally enacted on better promises. Consider Jesus. Consider forever and always. And as you consider that, think about the things that are forever and always things and why God wants you to do what he asks you to do. Our yes be yes, our no be no. Whatever you want, like Mary said, Lord, I'm yours. I'll suffer if you want me to suffer. I'll be blessed if you want me to bless by, be blessed by earthly blessings. I'll embrace Matthew 5 and the blessings that are there. I'll trust you. Let me ask you this morning. Are you living for forever and always? Are you living for now and until you get tired of it? It's hard to live forever and always. Matter of fact, it's impossible if Jesus doesn't do it through you. But if he does it through you, there's nothing better. Nothing. So what must you do? Repent. Be baptized. Become a part of the family. Trust God. Obey the teachings that he gives you. When you struggle, confess. Say, yes, God, I'll obey you. No, I won't do that. And when you mess up, you come before him because he is interceding on your behalf. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to consider you. Lord, there's a lot of scriptures here this morning, but I'm just trying to help people to see how forever and always has always been your plan. It hasn't changed. And we live in the tension of the already forever and always, but not yet. We're waiting. And waiting is, is the thing that we as people hate so much. But Lord, in waiting is where we find the relationship. It's who we wait with and how we wait together that gives us the hope of forever and always. Lord, I thank you for our church family. I thank you for those that are trying to live for you and live 
to be your witnesses, to go and make disciples. Thank you for the missionaries that we get to support as a church with all the offerings and and tithing that we give all around the world that they're going to make you known, to make disciples and baptize them and teaching them to obey you. I thank you for the partnerships in our cities that we get to partner with to try to be a witness to people of the forever and always that's coming, thankfully, to this temporary life in this temporary world. So, Father, I pray this morning that if anyone here has not surrendered to you, they've not fully considered to you and finally said, okay, I'm done. I give Jesus my forever and always. I pray today would be the day that they finally repent. They stop going the way they're going and turn to you. And, Father, for those of us who know you, I pray we would take seriously what the people in Acts did and what Jesus told his disciples to do as we follow you and give our very lives to one another. It's not perfect, it's messy, but you call this a flock. You call this church a family. You call this church your body. And we thank you for it, amen.